my sights were set on big things. It all comes down to community and I think we have a natural yearning for community and I knew that that's where it started for me and that's where everything would start for me when I started to create a community or get involved in the community that existed. I would later learn so much about Irish America and how blessed I am and you are to be a part of that diaspora. Welcome to Centerpiece NY, the stories of people young and old who have put down some serious roots in the Irish community in New York. This is Paul Finnegan, the creator, producer, and presenter of this podcast. Our centerpiece for this episode, our third of season two, is Sophie Colgan, who was raised in County Down in the north of Ireland and has gone on in her short time in this city to have a serious influence on the Irish community here. And as we promised you last time, she's definitely another example of the strong young Irish women Ireland is good at producing and sending to America. Sophie Colgan had a birthday recently, on Halloween to be exact, which as you know is an Irish thing. Halloween, that is not birthdays. It's not for me to tell you her age, but suffice to say, she has a long way to go yet. Nobody's story is ever really done, but for the young, there are many chapters still to be written, and often the ink is barely dry on the ones that are. And some chapters are still in progress, which makes them even more interesting. Such is the case with Sophie. In this episode, you'll learn what a remarkable person Sophie Colgan is, how, despite her many accomplishments and talents, she remains humble, graceful, and grateful. And you'll see how she is doing her part to redefine the Irish-American identity as it steps towards an uncertain future. How she has been bravely speaking truth to power, fighting to save an historical Irish building in New York that is simply irreplaceable, just as memorials and museums that bear witness to the great Irish hunger also need to be protected. But as always, we'll begin by parachuting into the prologue. I'm from a little townland called Lisnacree in the south of County Down. I was born in England, in Kent, actually. My younger sister Ella and I were born there. I'm one of seven. So Ella and I are the youngest. And by the time we were being born, my dad had moved to London and south of London for work. He worked in construction. Mom and dad had already had five of my siblings. So I think mom had tried to go it alone at home for a while in Lisnacree and then said, no, I have to go over and took the five siblings on the ferry and headed over and then lived there actually for, I think, about six or seven years. And Ella and me were born then in Kent. We moved back when I think I was turning three. I think we actually moved back on my birthday, which is Halloween, the 31st of October. So I remember coming back to our house in Lisnacree we're like in the countryside, you know, between two towns. And I can remember us driving up the driveway and everything was overgrown. You know, we have a big garden with a big driveway. There was no one in the house for a while, but the cows in the field next door had broken in to our garden. So our return to Ireland was all these cows in the garden and my dad going crazy, trying to get them out as we were trying to move back into the house. It's no surprise that Sophie's parents, both retired now, are remarkable too, and she is full of gratitude for all they have done for their children. 
Her dad, Pierce, proved good at anything he turned his hand to and has worn many hats. Farmer, fisherman, construction site foreman, you name it. But there are other sides to him. He was more of a creator. He's a very intelligent man. Anything he ever put his hand to, he's, you know, very talented at. I remember stories when I was growing up that dad, you know, was the smartest man from where we're from. He skipped years in school. You know, he was always very academic. He was an accountant as well. But he told me he used to hate like the confines of working in an office. He writes poetry. He's very into history. And now let's hear all about Mary, Sophie's mum. My mum is the homemaker, but also worked her whole life. And, you know, with seven kids, there was never really an opportunity for her not to work. And I really appreciate that, you know, looking back, how difficult that must have been. She worked in early years education. So she started off working in playgroups and like kindergartens for our American listeners. And then did certain, you know, different courses and and got different degrees and qualifications and became sort of regional head of a lot of the play schools and early education in Northern Ireland. And that actually is really important to me to sort of say about my mum, because she was very naturally a mother, very good at like encouraging creativity in me and my siblings. Time for a family roll call. Six siblings. There's no way you'll get away with leaving anyone out, Sophie. Okay, so this will be hard. So my eldest brother is Justin, and Justin is 10 years older than me, so he's 40. And Justin works in finance, and he's based at home. So he works in Belfast, which is about an hour and a half from where I'm from. He lives in Lisburn, and he's got two kids, my beautiful nephew Jack and my niece Grace. Then my eldest sister is called Kirsty. Kirsty's 39 and she's currently pregnant. She's married. She's living actually in Portadown with her husband. She's very artistic and she works in an office, but also does a lot of art projects on the side. My brother, James, he is, this is where I might get mixed up. He's 36, I think, uh, or 35. And James is a physiotherapist. He was always very sporty. He was an All-Ireland winning captain for the Down Miners and he played on the Down Senior Team. So big into Gaelic. And then my sister, Sarah, she's a year younger. She's 34. Sarah works in pharmaceuticals. Um, She works for a pharmaceutical company. She does marketing and public relations. I always say Sarah's the smart one in our family. She went to Trinity. And she's at home as well, close by with her partner. In like the most gorgeous part of County Down, she's right on Carlingford Lock in Greencastle, which is beautiful. She's only 10 minutes from the home house. And then my sister Ruth, she lives five minutes from home. She's got a beautiful daughter, Sienna. She's married. She works for the local council and she's expecting another one as well. And then there's me and then there's my youngest sister, Ella. She'll be 29 on this month and she lives in Sydney. Um, And she works in marketing as well. So she's there with her boyfriend. They've been in Sydney for about four years now. And that's all of us. Oh, Mary, this London's a wonderful sight. With people here working by day and by night. And they don't so we went to a lovely little primary school right at the foot of the Moor Mountains called Cologne. And it was just such a nice school, a really small school. And then I went to our local grammar school called St. Louis in the closest town to us called Kilkeel. And St. Louis again sort of nestled at the foot of the Moor Mountains a sort of stone's throw away from Carlingford Lock. But for all that I found there, I might as well be in the place where the dark morn sweeps down to the sea. I really enjoyed school. You know, I was very much into lots of different things. You know, I loved sports, but I really loved performance. That was my big thing. I loved being in the musicals. I loved singing. 
looking back, I probably could have applied myself a little more in the subjects that I did. But overall, I really, really enjoyed school. Yeah. My mum wanted me to go to drama school. I think really what probably was the big thing that stopped that from happening is the cost. And also I was probably like, no, I want to play my sports and do the things that aren't going to be as beneficial in the future. I still was performing up until like 17, 18 in school plays. And I remember going to university. My dad told me, make sure you join the choir and make sure you get into all of the drama, you know, elements that come with university living. When you go to university, you're having fun. The years really, really flew by. I wouldn't like to say I didn't have time, but I didn't have the commitment that I wish I had of. You know, if I was talking to a younger version of myself, I would have said, like, listen to what dad said and go and do that stuff. But at the same time, I think creativity and that sort of passion for arts, I still have in me. It's a part of who I am, you know. So after school, I went to Ulster University in Belfast and I did a degree in communications and public relations, which was a three year degree. We learned all about marketing, digital marketing, public relations, media, print media, digital media. It was in her final year of college that Sophie got her first experience in event management and promotion. She is extremely grateful to her eldest brother, Justin, for urging her to pursue an internship while in college. Because of his advice, Sophie landed at a major financial institution, Ulster Bank, in their events and sponsorship department. This gave her a year of solid corporate experience, which served her well when she got to New York. But for the big little family that arrived back from England, Fitting in did not come immediately. The GAA, that was part of your childhood? Yeah, it was. A little later than most, um, I started playing Komogi, which some of the American listeners might not know what Komogi is. You'll have to YouTube it because it's very hard to explain, but you're running around a field with a with a stick in your hand. Um, but our local club, Unraked, so that's the Irish for the kingdom, the kingdom of Mourne, where I'm from, the Mourne Mountains. Um, I joined that club when I was 13. And again, that's sort of later than a lot of people would join. But I think because, you know, we'd moved from England and I did feel like a little bit of an outsider, I think, in our local community because Ella and I sort of had strange accents, even though I was young. So I didn't join our local club. I was always a little nervous until I went to secondary school and I, you know, had friends who were playing and they encouraged me to come down and join the team. And I finally felt really accepted at that point and made great friends, friends for life. It turned out I was pretty good and pretty athletic at six foot. I'm handy on any sort of team. So, yeah, it's it, it was definitely a very important part of my upbringing to have been involved in our local club. Yeah. Well, you certainly lost the English accent along the way. I'll <laughs> say that much. <laughs> I take it as a compliment, I guess. <laughs> and it being the north of Ireland, there were other frequencies transmitting, naturally. Where we're from is right in the middle of two very different towns. So Kilkeel would be predominantly a unionist sort of Protestant town. Rostrever, Cologne would be nationalist, Catholic town. And I think my parents as well were trying to navigate where we would fit in because my eldest brother, Justin, for instance, he would have probably been about 14 when we got back from England. That generation suffered a lot of trauma and I don't know if I'm in a position to say exactly what they saw, but I just know like looking back from even my upbringing, you know, I was born in 91, there was a real feeling of like, what's the word? There was a harsh feeling in Northern Ireland and because it's such a small place and there's such a divide and yet there's very little space. It was hard, I guess, for us to understand where we fit in. I have a lot of respect for mom and dad for never making us 
forcibly feel or think anything. And it was actually not until I was 16, 15, 16, that I took a real interest in politics. And we learned, you know, so much about the Good Friday Agreement, although not as much about Northern Ireland, looking back, as I would have liked to learn. We learned a lot about like the Battle of Hastings and a lot of sort of UK events. But it was really at that age that I started to have an interest in what actually happened. And, you know, I knew bits and pieces, but it's not something that's in your education in Northern Ireland. You're dependent on your family to learn all of this stuff. One story that we we learned probably in my late teens was that my grandfather, James Colgan, he cycled down from County Down to Dublin to join Patrick Pierce, and hence why my father is called Pierce spelt the same way as Pierce. So whenever my dad told me that, it ignited something in me and I started to get so into, you know, what happened in 1916 and then furthermore. And I actually started to get so into it that I would go to local things like Sinn Féin gatherings. And I learned so much, but I also was almost frustrated. I was like, why did you not tell me all this stuff? Like, how come I'm only finding this out now? But I look back now and I'm like, well, it's the best way to be brought up is not to be, you know, influenced too much about what to think. We obviously knew what we were and what other people were, but there weren't those big labels. It's funny now looking back, you know, and trying to kind of balance it in my head. And I'm grateful for that element of their educating us in a way that wasn't too forceful or too one-sided. Did you ever feel discriminated against as a, someone from the nationalist Catholic community in the north of Ireland, even if it was just microaggressions, shall we say, a word that we like to use now, you know? Microaggressions. Yeah, I would say I did. I think, you know, in Belfast, when I went to university there, there's a big divide in Belfast, more based almost on income. And for one, I, I don't know how to explain this, but there's sort of the very wealthy, like sort of Lisburn Road, Belfast people who I would have been in university with and they would be on this sort of rugby circles. And, you know, those kind of higher end, they'd be a little bit more elite maybe than me and my family and where I'm from. And I think that sometimes we were viewed and a lot of my friends would agree that like we were these kind of rough cultures from the countryside. And my time in university, there was a passion for nationalism. But I always find that I didn't like to be too extreme in it. When I was working in Belfast, I was working with different people from different parts of the community. I developed a sense of not allowing that stereotype of me from the country and into GAA and from a sort of nationalist family. I never let that lead the way in the person I wanted to be or in my professional career. So I came to America in 2013 for a summer. So for three months before my final year of university, my friends and I said, let's go somewhere. And we decided on New York, there was different options, but we knew people who had come here and it was popular for this J1 summer. You could get this visa easy enough. And, you know, it felt like a real adventure to go somewhere like in New York City. So a few friends of mine and me came here we had friends living in the Bronx. We stayed with them. We managed to get a short-term apartment. There was three of us. And I just fell in love with the place. I felt like I find where I belong when I moved here. Just the sort of electricity of the city, the energy, the people. It was so far from what I was used to. Although Belfast is a metropolis, it's different than New York. We got involved in the GAA. We were at Gaelic Park up there in the Bronx and I was waitressing in a bar in the city. It was a gorgeous restaurant right behind Grand Central called Annie Moore's. If you remember it on Vanderbilt, it was just an amazing place to work because you're right on the doorstep of Grand Central. And I'd never seen so many people, different personalities and different ethnicities coming in and out. It was such an experience I actually met my now fiancé that summer, who's from Galway, Galway man like yourself, Paul. 
and uh, we God we, help you. <laughs> we hit it off, and I moved home then again, obviously to finish my final year. And I knew after my final year of university, I wanted to go somewhere. You know, I had the adventure in my soul. I was raring to go, and I picked New York again because I laid down some roots. I got a graduate visa. I graduated on the 3rd of July and I flew here on the 4th of July 2014 and yeah I haven't looked back since. I had put my resume out everywhere. I was trying to get into public relations and events where I had experience. I worked in a couple of construction companies and then finally one that I worked in for a year that I really liked. I worked in their accounts, but they used to have me help them do some of their social media and whatever. But I knew it wasn't what I wanted to do. You know, it was just for me to fulfill my visa requirements. My sights were set on big things. It all comes down to community. And I think we have a natural yearning for community and I knew that that's where it started for me and that's where everything would start for me when I started to create a community or get involved in the community that existed. I would later learn so much about Irish America and how blessed I am and you are to be a part of that diaspora. At the time I was just like, okay, I want to meet people, I want to have fun, make friends, so I joined our GAA team here, there's loads of them, but I joined Manhattan Gales. And I also heard about Solace House. I heard they had just opened here in New York and I was aware of the work they did. Solace House here in New York are a free service for people experiencing suicidal distress and depression. I came to one of their first ever meetings at the New York Irish Centre here in Queens and they were organizing their first walk and I said I would volunteer. I really wanted to help out. And that turned out to be the biggest and best thing I ever did here. Joan Freeman was here. Joan Freeman is the founder of the world-renowned Pieta House in Ireland and of Solace House in the United States, which gained its first foothold in America at the New York Irish Center in Queens, New York. And she was saying, you know, I think we need to really get Solace House's name out there. And they wanted to get their name out. You know, they wanted a bit of branding. And they said they wanted somebody to enter the New York Rose of Tralee. So for our non-Irish listeners, the Rose of Tralee is an incredible international festival that takes place in County Kerry in a little place called Tralee, which is gorgeous. And it brings together young Irish women under the age of 30 from all different countries, basically any place that has an Irish presence, they have a rose of Tralee. It used to be many, many years ago, 50, 60 years ago, it was a sort of a beauty pageant and it has developed so much since then. For a week, there's a huge festival and then one rose is selected as the ambassador for that group for the year and you travel the world, you travel the 32 counties, you see all the different centres like there's a rose of Tralee in Dubai, in Bahrain, they're everywhere, Abu Dhabi, and then different parts of England, different parts of America. It's a really incredible festival that brings together so many great places and histories of Irish people. And Joan asked, would I enter the New York Rose of Tralee and represent Solace House? And I was really not up for it. I was excited by the offer. I thought it was such a compliment to be asked but I said you know what I, I can't I've only been here for I think at that point seven or eight months I don't know New York I, I wouldn't feel right to enter and then she must have gotten in touch with the Rose of Tralee Centre here in New York and they reached out to me and they were like you're more than welcome to join And I thought, you know what, why not? It'll be a good way to meet people, you know, young women of Irish and Irish-American descent. And it was so fun. It was such a fun time. And I met great, great people. And 
surprisingly, I was selected as the New York Rosa Tralee. I got to the regionals in Port Leash in Ireland in May and then I got through that. There was 80 of us and then it got cut to 32 and I made the 32. So I came back to New York and then I flew back to Tralee in County Kerry in August of that year and I was the New York Rose and it was the best week of my life and my family's life because it is such an incredible festival and everyone in Ireland, every household knows about the Rose of Tralee. She was lovely and fair as the rose of the summer, yet was not her beauty. When I came back from that, I was the New York Rose for a year. So that means that you basically get to go to all of these incredible events. You're sort of given a fast track into the Irish American community. You're at everything going. And I was given the opportunity then to network and to meet people and my communication skills were really good after that because you have to learn how to speak well and how to be confident in your message and I think that's something that's a real New York quality is to be confident in what you're able to do. I was in rooms with people that were really great and there was opportunity for me in these different events and rooms and I then was hired to work at an incredible Irish museum in New York and I got my visa, I got everything, all that sort of good stuff that came my way because I said yes to an opportunity that really was life-changing for me. It really put me on a great path here and I'm always, always going to be grateful for that. My first permanent, if you will, job here that I was so passionate about was at the American Irish Historical Society, which is an Irish museum on 80th and 5th. So it's on the Upper East Side. It's in an incredible townhouse right across from the Metropolitan Museum, right across from Central Park on 5th Avenue on Museum Mile. And I got that job when I was the New York Rosa Tralee as I was gallivanting around Manhattan at these great events and it was a book launch that was on there. I remember the book, it was Towards a City Without Walls by Ficky Caustic and it was about the peace walls in Belfast and I was so interested in the book and very much honoured to have been invited as the New York Rose and you know, I still wasn't that great at navigating New York but I walked to Fifth Avenue and I started to dander up and I saw, oh my God, I'm right at the Met. And, you know, it was at night and the lights on the waterfall were on. And I looked up to my right and I saw this majestic building. There was like a really warm light coming from it. You know, whenever you're at home, it reminds me of when you're out for a walk at night and it's cold and you look into someone's house and it's really warm and it looks like there's a fire lit. And I remember looking up to this townhouse across from the Met with the lights on. And I was like, what a gorgeous building. And there I saw the tricolour and the star-spangled banner flying and above the door it said the American Irish Historical Society and I said oh my god this is where this event is and I'm going in here and up I went up the couple of steps into the green doors and into this marble lobby it was so impressive it just felt like you were in a historic place immediately when you walked in and upstairs you started to hear the sort of gentle conversation and it was building up and I walked in and I don't know if I knew many people, I probably didn't know many people, but immediately people were introducing themselves. I just really was taken aback by the place and the event was spectacular. I remember Martino Muller was there, he was emceeing the event and he gave me a shout out. Martino Muller, and there are an infinite number of pronunciations of his name in circulation, is a Belfast resident and frequent visitor to New York and is the publisher of the Irish Echo, the oldest and most widely read Irish-American publication. I know him from home. I know his family. Yeah, it was a really spectacular evening. And I remember leaving the event and I was kind of like, oh my God, like this is New York. I can't believe this place is here. And the director at the time showed me around and I saw the first ever 
tricolour that was risen over the GPO and I saw the proclamation, an original copy. And I remember just thinking there's one of those in my larder at home and like here's an original in New York. And I was looking over the balcony, looking down over Fifth Avenue and Central Park. I was really, really was one of those kind of moments where you're like you're starstruck and I felt real identity with the place. And lo and behold, a few weeks later, I got a, an email to say there was a job opening and would I interview for the job? And, and I jumped at it and I interviewed and I got the job as events and marketing coordinator. thought my luck was in and it was in to say after one year of living here that you were working in an Irish museum on Fifth Avenue you know especially when you're still a little wet behind the ears and all it was really spectacular and my eyes then began to open to our community here of Irish America the writers the artists the historians that we've produced in Ireland and that Irish America has produced and really I started to learn about the history of Ireland in a way I'd never learned and never been given access to. Even things like the famine and the things that came from that, that you don't learn in school or certainly you don't learn in the north of Ireland. I also was sort of really interested in the Irish American experience and that community because people would come in or come to an event and they'd be, in my opinion, they were Americans, they had American accents and they'd speak to me in Irish, in Gaelic. I would not know what they were saying and you know, without offending anyone, where I'm from anyway, people would say, oh, those Yanks and, you know, they think they're Irish and blah, blah, blah. And I hear I was sort of shamed by my lack of knowledge of our history and our language. And these people that were so passionate about it were really schooling me. And I made it my mission to be way more open minded and try to learn more. And I did that because the American Irish Historical Society isn't just an event space. It's not just like a library it's not just a museum it's sort of an experience there's archives there's history in the building itself there's been presidents of Ireland and the US there's been all sorts of people there I started out that job very young and very just grateful. I think my first 18 months, I just couldn't believe I was working there and I would do anything that I was needed to do. I'd work the extra hours. I would sing about the place around the city. I would say, everybody come here. This is the most amazing place. You're all welcome. You're all, you know, invited. And then I would learn that they weren't all welcome and they weren't all invited and that the Irish American community had this cold feeling towards this place and I had to learn myself why that was. I worked super hard to sort of change that impression. The impression was that it was elitist, that it was run by one group of people, a family, and that anything that people give or the community give financially, I find people saying they didn't think that that financial donation was going where it should be going, which is for most nonprofits into educational programs, into events, into things that give back to the community. And I find myself conflicted, you know, for a long time. I knew that the people in charge weren't responsible enough. I think I just realized that my good work and my hard work wasn't being managed properly. I don't think... I can speak any further without saying that the organization was not being managed well. I was really trying to improve the public image. I was trying to make sure that the programming was really inclusive and varied and that, you know, it was affordable for people to come in. And that wasn't being reflected at a management level. I had to make the decision to look into things a little further. I had concerns about the finances. I had big concerns about the management. It was a sort of sad story toward the end, you know, just to be very clear about it. I raised concerns with the board about management, about finances. And it turned out that the board at the time were exactly as suspected. They were controlled by a small group and I was made redundant after filing a complaint and yeah, then I, I had to move on. I had to move quick. I had 30 days to find a new job before my visa was gone. Maybe I should have read the writing on the wall a little sooner, but the fact that you're an immigrant in this city and 
I needed a visa to be able to live and work here. And the fact that these visa restrictions are so tight that from the day of my termination, I had 30 days to find a new sponsor for my visa. It instilled major fear in me. Luckily, because I had such good roots in the community and such good people around me, I was hired immediately by the Ireland US Council. That's when we started, me and the other people who were shunned all within a week. So various board members, anyone who sort of took one side were all shown the door. We started to get together and rally together and start to make a move and start to try to get the people in charge there to be investigated for how they were managing this nonprofit. And that's ongoing at the minute. Let's drill down some more on the environment where Sophie, with all her passion for the American Irish Historical Society's mission, worked her heart out. It became the most toxic environment I've ever experienced in my professional career. I felt like they dangled the visa over my head. I worked crazy hours. I worked until maybe 11 o'clock at night with some of the events. And a lot of the events that I was a part of, you know, might have been a book launch followed by a wine reception. And they would get very gregarious because of the management involved, if that makes sense. And things would run later than they should have or needed to. But because I was the only responsible adult in the building... I would have to lock up because this is a mansion on Fifth Avenue, you need to remember. In terms of even just simple resources, there wasn't enough. There should have been a building manager that would take care of these sort of things. I would then be not just expected to be back in the morning, but I would need to be back in the morning to handle the the clear up from the night before, to handle the next event that might be happening that evening to just get in and do the work that I needed to do to kind of fulfill my own mission in the place. And that continued and continued and continued. And I would raise a red flag about it. And I would get told that this is part of the job description. And anywhere I went to get sort of help on it, I was told like, no, like you're, that's your job. You know, you're, you're in a lucky position. Sure. You like events. You like, you know, you like to socialize. There was two people on the board Brian McCabe and Jim Normile. Jim was the president, Brian was the chairman. And even though I didn't have too many communications with them, I would see them at the odd event or at the odd meeting they would be in for. And they were on a board that they thought was incredible. Obviously, they're in the board of this nonprofit. And although the nonprofit was struggling financially, they didn't know the ins and outs of the operational dysfunction. And I felt they were the only people who might understand because I got such a warm and appreciative feeling from them. They always appreciated the work I did more so than my direct manager, that it was expected that I do this work. They were like, good on you. You know, you're putting so much into this. You're changing the ways here. There was always young people in. I had a young person's membership called Success in the City. It was really thriving. And so whenever I let them know what I was feeling, they very quickly came to my rescue and they said, look, we're going to help you. And In the meantime, the director of the society had somehow knew that this was going on. And that's when he started to sort of push me out and say I was no longer allowed to communicate with board members and sort of stuff like that, which is just straight off controlling, bullying, it's hostility, you know, we have your visa, that sort of language that really left me in a hard place. Ah, there's another mention of Sophie's work visa being weaponized against her. You know, this podcast is not one for editorial comment, but on behalf of the many people I know that have worked tirelessly for years for a more just immigration system in this country, there is one thing you just don't do. You do not leverage someone's legal status in this manner to control them. That's a no-no. You know, it was kind of like, do I be the whistleblower or do I kind of keep going and, you know, maybe things will get better. But I tried that option of like, keep going and I'll try to make little changes and be more forthright in what I do and don't do. And it exhausted me. It exhausted me to the point where I sought counsel and I wrote a letter and I put it all in black and white and it was reviewed. I had a meeting with two board members and then 
a week later, I got a letter in the mail to say my position was made redundant. So I can kind of laugh about it now, but at the time it was really traumatizing. Was there also a threat with the fact that you were taking away the elitist status of the place and you were bringing the real community into the place? Were they okay with that as long as they didn't have to pay for a building manager? Or were they just uncomfortable with taking away that veneer they had that they were upper class? They were uncomfortable with taking away the veneer that they were upper class, but they were also extremely aware that they needed every dollar that would come in. So the fact that most events were more accessible, they weren't strictly member only, there were lower cost on events, didn't bother them too much. But then when it came to public perception, you know, like on St. Patrick's Day, the fact that it's the last stop on the parade route, they still hated for people to think they were welcome in the building. They still loved to be on this balcony waving down at the peasants that were walking up Fifth Avenue. So I would say there was a mixed bag there. They knew that it was end of the road and they had to start allowing the community in because they needed that support. But they also didn't like that they had to bring down that elitist impression they had in the community. And essentially, to me, that is the reason for their demise really, really is. Yeah. Well, they're selling the building, in my opinion, because they have no other option to survive. So they have very little financial support. They're paying a mortgage on the building, even though it's owned by the nonprofit. I think that the jig is up. There's no rebirth. There's no other, like, let's try this. Nobody is coming to save the day in an, in that nonprofit. So in terms of long-term survival of the society, it's a smart move by the people in charge there to say, let's downsize, have a little more wiggle room and put all the money into programming and reinvent ourselves. But that's for a nonprofit that doesn't have a piece of real estate on Fifth Avenue. And I think that's a really important thing to say. And I know some people disagree that the building of the nonprofit doesn't necessarily matter as much as what the nonprofit represents. But when we're talking about this, we're talking about probably the most impressive building in the Irish diaspora. It's real estate that you can't compare, really. It's so important as a landmark, as an heirloom to our culture in New York of how generations of Irish people paved their way here and allowed for us to have this mansion on Fifth Avenue through the American Irish Historical Society. The one thing they won't do or admit to is that they need to change the management. It's as simple as that. Management in nonprofits changes every few years. It's healthy, it's natural, it's important for development and for growth. And they have refused to do that. There's so many Irish American and Irish people in New York who have been waiting to try to get into this place and try to make it be what it is meant to be. But because of the family name associated with it, They know that it's corrupt and I'll say the word that it's corrupt and people haven't been able to morally corrupt, morally corrupt, exactly morally corrupt. And and so that's why we have started this whole petition to stop the seal. We had over 40,000 signatures. Things have been super positive. You know, the community has really rallied behind our initiative and it really warmed my heart to know that people appreciated what I was trying to do there, what we were trying to do there, and has really made me appreciate the connections that I have and the friends that I have in New York. And the seal has been stopped by the Attorney General. We heard on St. Patrick's Day that the building wouldn't be sold until there was a full, thorough review done by Letitia James, the Attorney General of New York. And these things take time. They can take a year, they can take two years. But There's no quick fix. We want this to be done thoroughly. And if the outcome is that there's nothing they can do and that the society can sell the building, that's it. That's it put to bed. For the sake of the future of the society and for the history of the society, I think big change needs to happen. And whether that's done through this investigation or it's done more organically, 
as long as it happens, I'll be happy. I don't wish any badness. I have no bad feelings towards anyone involved there. I remember that feeling that I described walking in, you know, all those years ago. And if I can help to make that happen for someone else, some other sort of young person who's moved to New York and feels a little lost and overwhelmed. And that to me is is the most important thing. And now a message from Rebecca Sked, the CEO of Solace House. On behalf of Solace House in New York, we'd like to wish everyone a very happy and safe holiday season. The holidays can be a difficult time for a lot of people. If you or someone you know is struggling, don't hesitate in reaching out to Solace House by calling 718-482-0001. Solace House is a lifeline, a support system for so many people, a place to go when you have nowhere else to turn. Don't suffer alone, we are here to help. Stay well and here's to a joyous and healthy new year. Under the category of which Solace House would say, it's okay not to be okay. Do you want to describe what you went through personally from then and where you are now? Look, I'm made from tough enough stuff. I know that firstly, I'm a privileged person. I'm a privileged person. I have a great family, great friends. There's never going to be hopefully ever a time in my life where I'm, you know, really stuck. But my identity was a little shaken. I've had a few conversations about this since that we really put a lot of our identity on our work. I think in New York, you know, work takes up a lot of your time and it's kind of how you introduce yourself. It's your label almost. It's like, this is what I do. And everybody at home and everyone's like, you have such a cool job. You're meeting like presidents and these big stars. And and I really felt like that that identity of working there had been the formation and foundation of who I was in New York. And that might sound a little dramatic, but it really did. It was through an important period of my like mid to late twenties. And, and yeah, it shook me. It definitely shook my confidence. But as I say, I have such good people around me and people who valued what I was doing. And I was really overwhelmed by that. It was character building. It made me reflect a lot on how I wanted to continue my life in New York and I knew I wanted to continue being as happy as possible and didn't matter what my work was but as long as I was happy doing it that was the main thing so it sparked a bit of change in me I started to put my mental health much higher on the agenda you know that sort of image of a swan who's kind of gliding on the surface but their legs are going so fast underneath I was always busy, 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 and I I was putting my own well-being and my mental health in the back seat. So after the whole episode, I said, I'm going to start putting my well-being and mental health first. And how can I do that? So I started to be more physically healthy. I decided to stop drinking alcohol. That was two years ago. I haven't drank since, which is really funny because it spurred something in me that I knew I needed to to really start to look after myself. At that point, it showed me that when I stopped drinking for a little while, that a lot of my own sort of depression might be a strong word, but my own negative feelings and low energy. I felt so tired all the time, very lethargic. was down to like that sort of gregarious lifestyle of New York and that it's interesting now looking back, like the way that work and socializing comes hand in hand in a lot of our circles here in the Irish American community, especially when I cut out alcohol, I started to have way more energy, had much more positive approach to new opportunity, never had a hangover, was much more fit. I love yoga. I love running. I love meditation. I think all of these things all of these self-care tools, I realized I had totally just like thrown to the corner of my mind. I was like, no, I'm doing this. I need to work, 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 work. And I think everything happens for a reason because it gave me an opportunity to pause. And now I had this opportunity. I saw it more as an opportunity than a feeling. And now a word from our friends at the Celtic Irish American Academy in Galway.
My name is Brian Fahey, Director of the Celtic Irish American Academy. I would like to invite you to join us on our next programme, which takes place in Salt Hill, Galway, from July the 10th to the 23rd, 2022. Our two-week immersive summer programme for high school students is now enrolling. Come join us on this wonderful adventure in a classic Irish setting. This is Caitlin from Parkland, Florida. In July 2019, I attended the Celtic Irish American Academy as an emerging Irish-American young leader, fully immersing in the culture and heritage of Galway, Ireland. We stayed with an outstanding host family for two weeks, touring and attending classes on leadership, business, and volunteering. The memories I have and the friendships I made will last a lifetime. For more information, visit our website at CelticIrishAmericanAcademy.com. And now, back to Centerpiece NY. Moving on now to a happier Sophie story. Let's hear more about that fiancé of hers. Now, I didn't know you actually met him that first year in 2013. And how long are you engaged now? So we got engaged last Christmas. long strong line was done and now we're moving yeah. on to the next phase after <laughs> after seven years. exactly so my fiance is called brian glynn he's from ardrahan in county galway he and his brother both live here in new york and he's got one sister laura who's in galway and his mom and dad kathleen and martin glynn they're an incredible family Brian moved to New York a year before me, so he was here in 2000 and I think 12. He had lived in Chicago for a while. He had lived in Australia for a year. He works in construction and he found himself in New York and he's worked extremely hard. He's a project manager now and he's successful and super hardworking. And we met in Ned Devine's bar on McLean Avenue and we stayed in touch. And then when I moved back, you know, it was perfect. He was a real foundation for me here. And we've sort of navigated New York together. And Brian comes from a big GAA family. His brother, Johnny, is a Galway County hurler. Yeah. And Brian's a great hurler and footballer as well. They, they both play here in New York. Brian, in the last few years, his passions have diverted and he got into boxing. So he in 2000 and I need to get this right, 19, he won the Golden Gloves in Madison Square Garden. So Brian's a very athletic person and he's extremely strong willed and strong minded. And it's a quality I love about him. When he has something he wants to do, he'll do it. He'll do whatever it takes to get there. He never boxed before, but his friend who he worked with is a professional boxer. Brian said, I'd love to try boxing. And he went sparring with him a few times. There's Matt Tinker and Donald Ward are two pro boxers in New York, both of Irish descent, although Matt's also from England. Brian really got into it. It was only for a bit of fun. And then his coach, Mike Fulham, said, you know, he was coaching a few of the guys in the New York Athletic Club, said, Brian, I think you have something. And he trained so much for over a year and he entered the Golden Gloves, which is a kind of like historic championship here in New York. It's a big thing. It's amateur, but it's very popular. And he got all the way to the Golden Gloves final and won in Madison Square Garden in April of 2019. And his family were over and it was really epic. It was so fun. I'm so proud of him. And then he now does jujitsu. So he's very much into like martial arts and that's a big passion of his. We're getting married in July of next year here. So we're, we're not having the Irish wedding. We're having a wedding here and our families are coming over and we're getting married in Connecticut. So it's all exciting. Yeah. Do you see yourself having kids? I do. I hopefully would love to have a family. I don't think having a family is guaranteed firstly I just want to say that I hope to be able to have a family one day if I'm lucky enough to do so I used to always say I'd like to have seven kids because I'm one of seven but now um, I think that number is reduced but yeah we would love to have kids definitely in the future when we're more sort of stable and we know what our plan is 
It would be such a blessing to have a family, yeah. Will you take the name Glynn or stick with Colgan or Colgan Glynn? That's a hot topic at the minute. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I really don't know. I argue with Brian that my brand is Sophie Colgan, <laughs> but I also love his last name. I don't know. I think it's something I'm still thinking about. Yeah, so I don't know yet. Where do you see yourself raising a family if you are fortunate enough to have kids? Yeah, I see us starting out in New York. Well, we live in Jersey, so I'll say New Jersey. It would be amazing to give birth to our children here. And when the time comes, hopefully move home to Ireland. And if that doesn't happen, I'm also okay with that because I think that I've learned so much in the past few years, especially about how rich the Irish American culture is. It's such an incredible community that we're so lucky to be a part of that if we do have kids and we raise them here, it would be amazing. But I, at this point, cannot look past how well-rounded my own upbringing was. And I want to give, you know, if we have kids, I want to give them that. But I also couldn't see us closing the door on our life here. So if we could balance it in some way that we get the best of both worlds, if we win the lottery, we'll do that. Hi, I'm Sophie, and you're listening to Navigating New York, a podcast where I chat with people living and working in one of the most fast-paced cities in the world. Through these conversations, I hope to make living in the Big Apple a little less overwhelming. As the song goes, if you can make it here, you'll make it anywhere. So whether you're living here now, planning to move, or just interested in hearing real stories from people pursuing that American dream, I hope that you enjoy. So the podcast, tell us a little bit about it and where it fits into the, shall we say, the new post-AIHS Sophie. (laughs) So the new Sophie, I have to credit the podcast to my experience working at this society because it gave me a fast track, as I say, into like Irish America. I got to coordinate and attend all these events that had these impressive Irish and Irish American artists and writers and historians and I loved that I could listen to what they had learned about life. I had a few different ideas on what the topic or what the theme would be. And and I just sort of did a bit of soul searching and I wrote down things about, you know, what I'm passionate about, what I think I can do to help better other people's experiences in New York. And basically, I thought, you know what, I can facilitate conversation around career and around personal development as a young person in New York and also those pointers that you need for moving over here and navigating that part of life and then furthermore conversations with people across a variety of industries so it's not just a one-track thing so navigating New York is the name of the podcast and as I started it it was the intent was to really discuss career and I always do discuss career with my guests but it sort of organically shifted into more like a journey, a personal journey for all of my guests. They talk about their journey here and it's like your own podcast. It's about, you know, what brought you here? Why are you still here? What is it that you love about it here? And who are you? Who are you? Who are you? And what's the crack? Oh, yes. What's the crack? For our global audience, another example of the baffling use of the word crack by Irish people. It's also organically shifted really nicely into this sort of holistic health, well-being conversation about the things we struggle with. And I think it's a testament to the likes of Solace House and to all the various organizations here and in Ireland that the stigma is certainly being broken about talking about things that affect our mental health and our well-being and our emotions. Do you think your podcasting is a way of you expressing yourself in a creative way? Absolutely. I think storytelling is a big part of our identity as Irish people, especially as expats. My want to do the podcast shows that I had something, you know, that I wanted to to sort of be creative and 
have those conversations. It's such an experience. It's so rich. It's such a rich experience to have conversations that you don't typically have with people. You know, Paul, you would know better than anyone. You know, you know me, I know you, but we've never had this sort of conversation. And I find it really fulfilling and really interesting and really good for self-development. Definitely. Yeah. I'm on season two. I'm nearly closed on season two. So there'll be season three next year. As you know, it's hard to balance when you're working full time, but it's a passion project and I feel super grateful to have great guests and really positive feedback. And yeah, I hope I can do it full time one day, but we'll see. Currently, the Irish American community in New York is stronger than ever. I don't just say that, but honestly, I feel like the participation in events, in community initiatives across all different boroughs is really incredible. And there's a want for it. And I think that all stems from probably the pandemic. It's like we're all kind of clinging on to our identity and our support groups and our support systems. We've been away from home and we owe a lot to places like the New York Irish Centre and the Ashling Centre and people who've really helped initiatives get legs and bring everyone together. So I think that, yeah, I think the community is stronger than ever and it's probably being a little more diverse in terms of its membership, if you will. <laughs> There's a new appreciation for Irish Americans and all different versions of Irish people in terms of generations back. I find that personally anyway, that I'm making deeper connections with people who claim Irish heritage than actual Irish people, probably because there's less Irish people in New York, like straight off the boat than there ever have been. And I find myself very much surrounded by Irish people who are first generation and that's because of the circles I'm in with GAA, with work, working for different Irish American nonprofits. However, I'm really in the market for diversifying my friendship group. It's happening naturally in different ways because I feel like more of my friends have connections with different people now. I think we've all learned to be a bit more like accepting, maybe. I hope that's the case, but I find in my sort of circles anyway. For instance, my latest obsession is yoga and I'm doing a yoga teacher training course in Hoboken, New Jersey, and I absolutely adore it. There's 20 people in the class. There's only one other Irish person and there's all sorts of American people, Indian American, there's Mexican people, there's lovely, lovely people in this room and we all have this vested interest in yoga and I'm so excited to have these new friends that aren't just Irish and that's not to say I don't absolutely adore my Irish friends but I think it's very important to meet the people that are the the fabric of New York so I feel myself craving that now. I always say that we're really lucky to live like on the east coast of the US because going home to Ireland really doesn't take long. You know, flights are reasonably priced. You can really go home if you need to, you know, at the drop of a hat. But if you're coming from Australia, obviously it's a whole journey. Next July, I'm getting married. So we probably won't all be together as a family until next summer, but it will be really epic when that happens. I remember our school uniform, I hated wearing it at the time, but now I look back, the colours of the uniform were the colours that you see in the Mourn Mountains. So like we were wearing sort of maroon blazers and green jumpers or sweaters and like sort of lavender blouses. And they were all the colours of the like the heather and everything that you see up on the Mourn Mountains. My mum actually, she was really into this campaign that was launched sort of in the 2000s, late 90s in a lot of these very divided areas and it was a respecting differences campaign. She really showed us that it doesn't matter what you look like or where you're from or what your label is, everybody, you know, deserves the same treatment. It's such a, it, 
like an emotional thing to talk about your own upbringing and stuff, even though mine is very positive, but it's very rare that you do it. It's really, it is an, it's a nice thing to do. And sort of like journaling, I guess, but with your voice. <laughs> I think that anybody who tries to force their opinions on you, whether that be political or social, to me, it's one of the most like unattractive things that you can be is to be like, this is what I believe and, and you're wrong and I'm right. It took me a while to get away from that Irish style of putting ourselves down and underselling ourselves. And now you could argue that New Yorkers and Americans might oversell themselves, but in a way that can be more beneficial than underselling yourself. Our conversation with Sophie took place in November 2021 in the library of the New York Irish Centre in Queens. Be sure to check out our website at centerpieceny.com. That's C-E-N-T-E-R-P-I-E-C-E-N-Y.com. There you'll find out everything you ever wanted to know about this podcast, but were simply terrified to ask. And there, too, you'll find lots of interesting stuff in the show notes for this episode, which will help you learn more about some of the things you heard in this episode. And you'll also find a link to Sophie's excellent podcast, Navigating New York. So be sure to give that a listen. Will we leave it like that, Sophie?